Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. And it's our 44th episode. What? It's a very special number. Yeah. So I thought I'd talk about four things. Oh, yeah. not 44 things? That would have been an interesting episode. 44 facts. Here we go. This is going to be a long one, folks. No, only four. Only four. <laughs> I think when we get to our hundredth episode, we should like do a hundred facts. Write that down, we'll and see. in a few years, see if we can remember. It might change your mind. Anyways. Anyway. So tell me about these four things. Well, not just any four things. We're going to talk about four American socialists. Ooh. These are mostly people folks have definitely heard of, but I'm hoping to to reveal another side of them. That, that they may not be familiar with. And I think... And that's the socialist side. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, for none of them, is that going to be more true than our first segment, Helen Keller, the most famous seven-year-old in American history. I'm still mad about you <laughs> talking about her. Why is that, dear? Because I was in the Miracle Worker twice. <laughs> and, like, know as much as there is to know about Helen Keller... The the film that follows her from, you know, her college years all the way to her death in the 1960s? I read a lot of books about her. <laughs> a lot of books. But, yeah, after the end of The Miracle Worker, where she has just discovered the gift of language. Yes. She did live for another 80 years. Yeah, yeah, she did. Uh, so, and, so we're going to talk about some of that. And Annie Sullivan was right... There with her. For most of it. Yeah, until she, like, died. She died first. Yeah. yeah. She's uh, a lot older. But but one thing that Helen Keller is, of course, famous for is her disability activism yeah. as a blind and deaf individual. Uh, in 1904, she became the first blind deaf person to earn a Bachelor of Arts degree. She graduated from Radcliffe College, uh, which was the Women's School of Harvard. Uh, her education was sponsored by someone that she met through Mark Twain, another whitewashed American radical. He, mm -hmm. he could have fit in this episode, but I don't think he ever used the S word to describe himself, so yeah. technically disqualified. Okay. He could go in an episode like this one. Okay. Uh, so her, her studies into uh, disability and, and the reality of life for disabled uh, people in America at the time taught her how much blindness was caused by unsafe workplaces or were caused by uh, uh, life in poverty. Mm -hmm. uh, things like uh, an unequal access to health care, uh, the cleanliness of the slums or lack thereof, and just the, this common refrain of people putting their profits over providing safety or healthy conditions. That's still a problem. Plenty of people are born blind or, or like her, were struck blind by a, a childhood illness, but there's all these other thousands and thousands of people. Yes. She was also brought to uh, the socialist movement by her participation in women's suffrage and women's rights movements. Mm -hmm. uh, she joined the Socialist Party in 1908, four years after graduating college, uh, and she articulated a Marxist analysis of disability rights uh, that was decades ahead of its time. Mm -hmm. She argued that uh, the capitalist system required unemployment, so all workers are set in competition with one another, so they aren't one of the, the ones cast aside into idleness. Mm -hmm. The blind are the victims of this process, and restoring their sight would not lift them from poverty. We must advocate for a system that provides for everyone. While other activists, other thinkers of the time, uh, were 
almost all not disabled themselves and wrote with like an oh poor thing sense of paternalism mm-hmm. if we find a way to educate these poor deers then then they will lift themselves up and everything will be fine well no because you aren't because you're just putting them back in the same meat grinder there there will still be people left out yeah there will be another reason that they are excluded mm-hmm in 1912, she witnessed and participated in the, the Lawrence Textile Strike, also known as the Bread and Roses Strike. That, that's why the rose is a symbol of uh, socialist movements and parties. It, it comes back to this uh, 106-year-old strike. Mm-hmm. The slogan was that uh, labor should not only provide bread, but roses. The, the ability to survive and the things that make life worth living. Yeah. Culture, leisure, uh, the, the finer things. Yeah. More than mere subsistence. Yes, because what's the point of living if you're literally just getting by? Right. And just surviving. So uh, in the process of this this strike in this year, uh, Keller left the Socialist Party and joined the International Workers of the World, uh, saying that parliamentary socialism was, quote, sinking in the political bog. And, yeah, and instead just advocate for direct action in the labor movement. During the 1910s and 20s, she was at her most radical, along with the rest of uh, socialism in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, her career arcs pretty closely to American political consciousness. Yeah. You know, decade by decade. So during this period, she had a stated commitment to revolution. Uh, she supported legal birth control and abortion. Uh, she was a militant suffragist. That was the, the term she applied to herself, who saw the fight for the vote as a battle in the war to topple capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a supporter of the NAACP uh, and also a personal friend of W.E.B. Dubois, its founder, uh, an anti-Jim Crow activist, even when the Socialist Party was kind of split on it. There were, there were some leaders who were like, yeah, we need this, but... Mm, I don't know if we can take black people with us. They're just not quite th- like, dude, uh, y'all need to shut up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she was a pacifist, decrying both world wars as acts of imperialism waged by the powerful nations, not against one another, but against their workers. Mm-hmm. In the Second World War, she did recognize fascism as the greatest enemy and advocated the democratic nations accept all refugees from Nazi Germany. She she was especially vociferous because all countries turned away the disabled at their borders. They only wanted able-bodied immigrants. None of these these lesser refugees. You can't do anything for us. Right. Yeah. Her her feelings uh, about Nazi Germany were reciprocated because they spent a lot of time burning her books... Uh, for promoting Bolshevism. Yeah. 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 Now, she did change her mind when Germany invaded the USSR, saying it had then become a people's war of liberation. Uh, she, she was a major supporter of the Russian Revolution, and it took a while for her to uh, change her mind once, you know, news of what Stalin was up to uh, made it beyond the Iron Curtain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Again, just really following the arc of, of American political consciousness throughout the early 20th century. She toured European battlegrounds and the atomic craters and regretted going back on her pacifism for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. The more political she got, the more belittled she was in the press. Yeah. So anytime she talked about her personal struggle, she was an inspiration, just a a brilliant and gifted person. We need more Helen Kellers in the world. Mm -hmm. But when she spoke about society at large, 
then the papers portrayed her as a, a poor dear duped by the people she relied on, unable to see how things really are due to her unfortunate condition. <laughs> so after uh, the First World War in the, the late 20s and through the 30s, the first Red Scare was alive, uh, decimating and fracturing the Socialist Party and the IWW. Uh, she was a founding member of the ACLU, originally created to defend people put in prison for advocating socialism. <laughs> Those were the first liberal liberties they uh, unioned, I guess. Yeah. Many of her friends joined the Communist Party, but she never did. She was a, a fellow traveler, but no, not a card-carrying member. Mm -hmm. uh, she was hired around this time by the American Foundation for the Blind to go out on lecture tours on behalf of, of the blind. And the AFB controlled her message. Yeah. She uh, had to get things rubber-stamped or else she wouldn't get the paycheck. Yeah. Her socialism was still present, but was now entirely split from her disability advocacy. That that earlier Marxist critique of uh, you know disability politics mm -hmm. was now absent. Yeah, uh, it was still there in her you know moonlighting, but the two roads diverged. Yes, and if I remember correctly, when she started doing a lot of that stuff mm -hmm. is when they were kind of at a financial. There, she was running out of money mm -hmm. from various things, which she is why, yeah, she needed a job and she made the decision to, okay, I can do this. I can advocate for something I like, something I support. Mm -hmm. I will just have to leave that and do that separately because mm -hmm. you, you got to eat. <laughs> <laughs> and this was the, the work that she did. Uh, for the rest of her public life, yeah. essentially, until she retired as her health declined in the early 60s, and she died after this retirement in, in 1967. Mm -hmm. The FBI maintained a file on her entire adult life due to her anti-capitalist work and, and rhetoric. Of course they did. <laughs> <laughs> there is a statue of her in the U.S. Capitol. It is as a seven-year-old girl at a water pump. Uh, yeah. Helen Keller as a, a special individual lifting herself by her bootstraps. That is the, the way she has been enshrined, uh, including in The Miracle Worker, which she uh, did not enjoy. She, no. she did not support the play, although she, she never really elucidated any specific objections. She's just like, no. Yeah. But maybe, maybe that's why. Yeah. And maybe not. I don't know. But maybe. You know, she told her story. Yeah. And she, she used it for many, advocating. Many times. Yeah. But perhaps I don't know why she I have not I don't know anything specific about why she didn't either. Maybe it's But perhaps it's because it focuses on that short time period and like because it focuses on like what a terrible child she is because she does <laughs> she can't communicate, but it's all like yeah. she's terrible and not It's not anything a flattering that, portrait up until the last 5 minutes. No. No, <laughs> it does not and it doesn't continue on with anything in her life so you just get the snippet of this terrible child mm -hmm. who is a victim of her circumstances and why she's terrible it doesn't paint anyone in particularly flattering light no i mean no. it doesn't paint ann sullivan at all it doesn't paint her, her parents no like her brother's the best one and he's <laughs> not great <laughs> he's just a wet noodle of a of a man in that play yeah uh it's a good play but they're, they're it is a very good play, but I can, like, someone wrote that play, of, you know, about yourself, you'd probably be like, <laughs> mm, 
man, had to focus on Mm -hmm. tantrum time of my life. Cool. Cool, cool. Nice. Great. (laughs) And he also made my parents look like apples, and my teacher companion for life look like a jerk. (laughs) Just abusing her for the right reasons, though. Yeah. Uh, it's a great play, but mm. I I can understand. But for for whatever reason, she did not give her her thumbs up to it. Uh, the the miracle worker is the most enduring image of Helen Keller we have, rather than as a Marxist theorist trying to lift all people through solidarity. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to our second segment: Martin Luther King Jr., the Democratic Socialist. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is something that I think is a little bit more Mm -hmm. well-known, depending on what circles you travel in, uh, which uh, King quotes get shared every January. Yeah. (laughs) There is a war of quotes uh, every year. It's always interesting, like, quoting famous people Mm -hmm. because of stuff like that where you're leaving out certain things about them. In some instances, people, like, quote someone... About how, like, oh, they're so this. But I'm like, yeah, but you're forgetting. Mm -hmm. No matter who it is, there's always, like, something. I'm like, you're leaving so much out right now. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, In case we lost you a little bit, he is known as America's greatest civil rights leader. So you probably are familiar with the name. Using nonviolent demonstrations to overturn Jim Crow segregation in the South. Also, a longtime anti-capitalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, people point to things like the Poor People's Campaign, which, yes, we're definitely about to talk about, and the rhetoric around it as a development late in his career. Uh, but even in 1952, he wrote in a letter to his wife, quote, I imagine you already know that I am much more socialistic in my economic theory than capitalistic. Capitalism started out with a noble and high motive, but like most human systems, it fell victim to the very thing it was revolting against. So today, capitalism has outlived its usefulness. So there you go. In private, way back in 1952. Mm-hmm. He was also a deeply religious man. He is a, a pastor, after all, the Reverend Dr. Martin mm-hmm. Luther King Jr. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah whose Christian faith was opposed to greed and exploiting labor. Jesus was no fan of the profit-motivated folk. No. That, that is in black and white. Yeah. Also the red words, the important ones. <laughs> I love Bibles that have the red words. Yeah. 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 I don't have any strong uh, feelings, feelings on, on, on particular on... printing uh, all <laughs> conventions. I, all, my only strong feeling was... Uh, that Bible I came across at Bass Pro that was like camo, like pink camo and jewel mm-hmm. encrusted. And I was like, dang, that's a flashy Bible there. <laughs> I mean, I do have to say that the best Bibles are the ones that have uh, skateboarding scorpions in them. But the second best have the red words. Yeah. Yeah. His socialism also came out in response to his campaigns outside the segregated South. Uh, just check back to our Richard J. Daly episode where he pops in as a side character for an example of that. Uh, the tactics employed against legal segregation were not as effective against the, the less explicit segregation employed by, say, realtors and bankers. So as these campaigns uh, uh, evolved, uh, as his targets changed... The, the fact that he was a, a steadfast democratic socialist started to come more to the surface. 
believing that the will of the people would provide for the needs of the people. Uh, mm -hmm. He rejected communism both because of its authoritarianism, which is pretty much always the wrong way to go, uh, and its rejection of Christianity. Mm -hmm. He could never get as materialist as many of his peers, you know? Yeah. <laughs> always need to leave room for faith. Uh, democracy in the political sphere, but also in the workplace. Democracy that ensures none are left powerless because they cannot afford to have a voice. Mm -hmm. It was also brought out hand in hand with his public opposition to the Vietnam War. Uh, both of these, uh, uh, opposition to the war and his anti-capitalist uh, uh, leanings, were both held for a long time, but he kept quiet on to avoid alienating his uh, allies in the Democratic Party. Uh, President Johnson, for one, mm -hmm. it's not someone who's going to like you very much once you start saying that the, the war is immoral and should end. Yeah, probably not. Uh, in April 1967, he delivered the Riverside Church speech, Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence. And he came out so winging. He called the war American imperialism and connected it to economic injustice. A true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth. With righteous indignation, it will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say, this is not just. Mm -hmm. Uh, every dollar spent on guns and bombs was one that wasn't going to go to feeding or housing the poor. Yeah. Uh, quote, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Here's another one. That from right the there. That right there. Like, frame that. Put it on every wall everywhere. It's a landmark speech. It is the watershed of his uh, uh, shift in focus from uh, uh, civil rights to human rights, from, from desegregation to advocating for the poor everywhere. Mm -hmm. Here's another hot quote from that one. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. Mm-hmm. With this shift, the press also turned on him, even the, the portions of the press that supported him in his earlier campaigns, Yeah, which wasn't that many, frankly. Uh, they loved hearing him preach nonviolence to black Americans seeking liberation, but they turned on him when he was preaching nonviolence to the U.S. government, asking them to stop being violent with Vietnamese children. Yep, yep. Sounds like something they wouldn't like. Yeah, the, the New York Times wasn't really big on that for some reason. Yeah. Huh. Uh, with this shift in focus, President Johnson had the FBI increase their surveillance of his activities. Just as a baseline for what they were increasing from, this was a few years after the FBI tried to blackmail him into suicide. Yeah. Yeah. More yeah. surveillance than that, please. Because that's, that's not enough, you know. It didn't work. Well, no, it didn't. So... It's a good thing they're bad at their jobs. <laughs> so now we come to the Poor People's Campaign. Like I said, presenting this campaign to his organization, quote, we have moved from the era of civil rights to an era of human rights. Mm -hmm. the, the planning began in his final meeting with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the uh, organization he built to manage all these uh, uh, campaigns that he ran and, and his uh, allies did as well. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, one day we must ask the question, why are there 40 million poor people in America? When you ask that question, you begin to question the capitalistic economy. Yeah. Uh, the demands of this campaign included $30 billion in government spending for anti-poverty programs, full employment, guaranteed income, and the annual construction of half a million affordable residences. Mm -hmm. He was assassinated in Memphis not long after this, April 1968. He happened to be in Memphis supporting a sanitation workers' strike as part of the run-up to the Poor People's Campaign. Yeah. A week or two after he was shot, his final statement on the campaign was published posthumously. Uh, a magazine article warning that social collapse could come any time now, and an economic bill of rights was the best way to prevent it. Mm -hmm. Before he died, he published his final book, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, arguing that the path forward after the gains made so far... Uh, by the civil rights movement, were economic justice and a universal guaranteed income. Mm -hmm. uh, so these are the things that uh, you're not going to hear from the New York Times in January. Yeah, they're uh, not going to bring up the time when they were they, bad, really, really bad. They love 1964 King, not so much 1967 King. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you see pictures like uh, this year of Paul Ryan standing in front of his bust in the Capitol. <gasps> so, Paul Ryan, what are you doing as far as $30 billion in government spending for anti-poverty? Where, where do you stand on that? Yeah. Yeah. Where, where's your half a million houses? Yeah. So while you write to your congressman, we're going to take a quick break and be right back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ready to hear the rest. Are you sure? Yes. You're getting really frustrated. Well, I'm always frustrated. <laughs> That's my secret. <laughs> now I'm going to respond to a, a listener letter we got a little while back ago from Kieran. Yeah. Because our next segment is on Margaret Sanger, the birth control pioneer. Yeah. Uh, she was a nurse and mother who moved to New York City in 1911 and fell in with some very interesting types. Yeah. The, the whole Greenwich Village scene at the time was just a center of leftists and radicals. She had some fun neighbors. Yeah. And uh, this network uh, of neighbors got her job writing for the New York Call, a socialist paper in the city. Mm -hmm. uh, she joined the Women's Committee of the New York Socialist Party and was also involved in uh, the IWW's strike in 1912, uh, the, the Bread and Roses strike, and uh, the following year, 1913. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was actually friends with Helen Keller. They were like buds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They hung out all the time. But her day job, her nursing, uh, took her to the homes of many pregnant people, and the poor were often in desperate conditions. Yeah. Uh, she saw homes with too many children to feed, bodies too weak to survive another pregnancy, and, and no knowledge of any way to prevent it. Yeah. Uh, which led her to her life's work of providing birth control and education, but she never lost her class consciousness regarding the issue. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, her first books on contraception, What Every Mother Should Know and What Every Girl Should Know, uh, that are credited with you know kicking off her career, were collections of columns she wrote for The Call. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, she was also a suffragette back in the day when we needed those. Yeah. <laughs> but had no respect for other suffragettes who disregarded the plight of poor and working women. Yeah. She published an anarchist newsletter called The Woman Rebel with the slogan, No Gods, No Masters. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get much more anarchist than that. Uh, reappropriating an anarchist strike slogan uh, to refer to a woman's autonomy over her own body and taking it one step farther away from Nietzsche's original meaning, but whatever, that's just how... that That's meme theory for I, you. I want a button of that. No gods, no masters? Yeah. Yeah. Need that. <laughs> Wear that everywhere. But what about the... Only one god. It's a scorpion, not a skateboard. Yeah. He's cool. He's cool. He's cool. As her, her notoriety grew and the legal barriers that, that she was uh, striking against began to fracture, her focus remained on making birth control available to the disadvantaged, uh, as exemplified in her Harlem uh, clinic mm -hmm. that she staffed entirely with, with black staff mm -hmm. in order to make it you know an ingrained part of the community. Yeah. Margaret Sanger, of course, her... her Early socialist work became her all-consuming life's work. So this is a shorter segment. Yeah. But it's part of her life that uh, I think deserves more than the footnote it tends to get sometimes. Yeah. That it was it was much more of a focus for her than mm -hmm. what normally it's just like, oh, birth control. She was for birth control. Well, yes, but... She was for birth control as a means of elevating uh, the, the lower classes... Mm -hmm. And she saw her enemy as the capitalist system. Yes. That created these conditions that she had to provide diaphragms to, to sort of help people out of. Yes. Mm -hmm. to, to let people take control over their life in some way so they could so they could do what they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or so, to try to. So if you see some of her earlier writings in The Call in uh, Rebel Woman, it, there's a lot more rhetoric about... The industrialists need this workforce so they don't care that the poor are popping out far, far more children than their their budgets and their bodies can, can handle. Yeah, because that means then that they don't have money and they don't have enough food, so then they're going to send their children to go work. Exactly. And even with child labor laws coming out, they're still going to like lie about their children's <laughs> age and let them go work because mm -hmm. they all don't want to starve. Uh, you also find later writings of hers around the 1950s or so uh, reflecting on her time when she could not get the support she needed from. Uh, there, there's like one quote, like, you know, I, I go to the suffragists and they're like, once we have the vote, then we'll help with, you know, your campaign. And then so I turn to the socialists. Well, once we have gotten uh, uh, economic justice, then we can help with it. So, yeah. I'm sure she was dismissed by many of her contemporaries. Yeah. But she didn't start saying it until after two red scares, until she became, you know, an, an older woman who had succeeded on most of her, her campaigns. Yeah. But that's, that's life. That's context for you. Yeah, it's true. It did seem to be more of a strike against membership than ideology. Yeah. So that brings us to our fourth of four, Huey P. Newton, co-founder of the Black Panther Party. Oh. Let's get controversial. Okay. So the Black Panthers were founded in 1966 as a revolutionary socialist organization dedicated to black liberation mm -hmm. with a, uh, an intellectual Maoist foundation. 
Yep. Yeah. You don't find a lot of Maoism these days, probably because of, you know, the things that happened after the 60s. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. But they were organized around a 10-point program, their goals and mission statement. These points included full employment, quote, an end to the robbery by the capitalists of our black and oppressed communities, decent housing fit for human beings, and the 10th point, the, the, like, catch-all, just-in-case-we-missed-anything point. Mm Mm-hmm. We want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. Sums it up pretty Uh, well. In 1972, Newton uh, amended the 10 points, including a demand for completely free health care. So back to the 60s, back in the early days. Yes. uh, He recruited wherever he found disaffected young people, you know, people like him, and steered gang activity toward community building. Mm -hmm. He uh, graduated high school illiterate. Mm-hmm. taught himself to read, and the first book he read was Plato's Republic. He read it five times until he was sure he got it. That is an intense book to start with. <laughs> no training wheels, no. We're going to do this. So the, the party's activities were largely uh, focused on building their community. They founded the Oakland Community School, which provided a high-quality education to the impoverished, about 150 of the the poorest black kids in Oakland. Mm -hmm. They also had the Free Breakfast for Children program. This was nationwide. It's probably their most successful program. Uh, Newton's support for the breakfast program and other survival programs, rather than uh, more openly revolutionary, directly antagonistic action, Mm -hmm. uh, was part of the schism in the 70s that sort of tore the the Black Panther Party apart. Uh In 1969, from prison... He was published in Ebony Magazine describing uh, his ideology and that of the party. Do you want to take any of these quotes, dear? I can't see any of them, so no. Through the microphone? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Sorry about that. That's okay. I'll do it then. Okay. So, uh, again, this is from Ebony Magazine in 1969. Quote, The people should collectively decide exactly what they need, and they should share fully in the wealth they produce. To this end, the whole administration of the government should be subject to the dictates of the people, something that doesn't occur in present capitalistic society. Mm -hmm. Page or two later now. It is a historical fact that blacks were brought to this country for the profit of the ruling class, which at the time were landowners. They needed somebody to till the soil and grow profitable crops. Today we have shifted from an agrarian economy to a goods production economy. But the same relationships exist between the private owner and the worker. Nothing has changed. Therefore, for the people to be free, they must seize control of the means of production. This is the ultimate objective of the Black Panther Party. We are attempting to transform an oppressive capitalistic society into a socialistic society in which each man shall participate in the decisions that affect his life, making him free. You got a lot of time to, like, work on your rough draft when you're in prison. Yeah. I guess. Make it, word it for how you want. Now, he was in prison because of uh, one of several murder and assault charges that uh, dogged him through life. He was never convicted for any of them, or at least uh, the one he was convicted with was overturned in appeal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he spent a great amount of time in prison for being yeah. held for trial and appeal and etc. And also in uh, exile to Cuba for a while. To avoid. Yeah. This is one of the hardest things to talk about from a historical perspective because it's real hard to determine what's real. Yeah. Because it's it's just a lot of testimony that you cannot 
determine the exact facts of. Yeah. Are you going to trust the the cops in an altercation with a founder of the Black Panther Party who's there to police the police? Yeah. Uh, are you going to trust the person accused of shooting a cop either? Like, Yeah. And people are like, well, one time when we got drunk, Huey said, okay, but you're also an FBI informant under Hoover's FBI. I don't know if I can believe you either. Yeah. Is rough. Yeah. I mean, he was, to... he was definitely a violent guy. Mm-hmm. How many of these beatings and shootings he did, how many of the ones that people say were done in his name he actually knew about, we will never know. Yeah. But he's a violent guy. That, there's no question about that. Mm-hmm. The 1970s rift in the party had members from both camps assassinating leaders of the other in like a retaliatory thing. Uh-huh. This led to four people's deaths. Uh-huh. Uh, And again, this is one of the things that his involvement is difficult to discern. Yeah. As the party split apart and lost its connection to allied movements, uh, both the split within and the split from their contacts were results of uh, an FBI campaign, part of COINTELPRO. Uh, Newton succumbed to a drug addiction that would lead to his death in 1989. Mm Mm-hmm. At its height, he and the organization he created articulated a vision of liberation and freedom and directly and materially improved the lives of people in their community. Mm -hmm. So uh, one last quote, the one that I think he's remembered for more than any. We have two evils to fight, capitalism and racism. We must destroy both racism and capitalism. Yeah. So, darling. Yeah. What have you learned? I knew some of this. Mm Mm-hmm. But I Particularly think the Heaven Keller part. Heaven Keller? That's where she is, that. yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, also, like, Margaret Sanger I was familiar with. Um, vaguely across the entire board. Mm-hmm. Like, I knew some of it across the entire board. But looking at all these people, basically how, like, a lot of what people support mm-hmm. can be so overlooked. Right. And so forgotten or so pushed to the side for an agenda of, I want this quote for so-and-so, or let's remember this person for this. The, the historical flattening, even the whitewashing yeah. of history. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. The, for, for many people, Helen Keller's life ended when she said Wawa. Yeah. And then she was done. Oh, she and, could speak and she said it in a new language. Okay, cool. Or it ended when, you know, she wrote a book. I don't really know what's in the book. And, and she got a college degree. And that's yeah. that's fantastic. And that is fantastic. But there's a whole lot of other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Or like talking about Martin Luther King and how like he said all this stuff and supported all these things. And now politicians nowadays talk about quote him mm-hmm. or. Every year, every year there's op-eds like, if he were alive today, Martin Luther King would be a conservative. Hell no, no, he wouldn't. He wouldn't. <laughs> Just because he liked Jesus doesn't mean he would be. He voted Republican and like, yeah, before the, the like, that come on. That meant different things back then. There's always like more to a story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there's always things that get left out. Mm-hmm. And you got to look. I think the interesting thing is how these people who had four different struggles yeah. all found the, the root of yeah. the, the cause of the, the problem they were specifically focusing on in the capitalist system. Yeah. And, how and it all goes to like back to the same problem, mm-hmm. the same issue. If we fix this, these things will, like, we can help fix all these things. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta go to the root. Yeah. 
the this exploitative uh, uh, nothing has caused more evil in the world than the profit motive. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. almost in the red words. It's pretty close to a thing Jesus said. Yeah, uh, yeah. A little snake on a skateboard. Excuse well, no, no, we don't like the snake. No. Snake is bad. Scorpion. Scorpion. Excuse me. Scorpion. Scorpion on a snake board. Or a snake board? Yeah, sure. He could ride a snake board. You ride that bad snake. You ride it. But also the different forms their socialism took. Like Helen Keller, like big time Bolshevik. Mm-hmm. Number one Lenin fan. Yeah. Uh, and then... <laughs> And and uh, Martin Luther King and no 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 time for any of these uh, Russian communists, but Newton was uh, he almost met Mao. He yeah. met Mao's wife and yeah. thought he was going to meet Mao. He must have been very disappointed. Uh, he met the premier of China at the time, but not the head of of the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, yeah. I there there is of course a long history of uh white men who are socialists in the u.s but i just eh. i thought i'd provide a little more uh uh we want some variety yeah. some variety you know we can't all be howard zinn i guess but yeah yeah which is to say dead although so are all four of these people so what are you gonna do i would be very surprised if they were all living because Specific- two of them were born in the 1800s yep yep <laughs> I'd be a little concerned. Yeah. A little concerned. I just know that if I ever do Eugene Debs, that's a full hour, not not none of these yeah. segments. So yeah. look for that eventually, I guess. Yeah. So I guess that's it for our, our regular episode. Uh, We're gonna take a quick to... break. Yeah. And be back with letter time. Okay. We sure are. We've got, got some letters. We've got letters. Yeah. I'm doing a little dance. Letter dance. It's a snake dance. It's a little snake arms. Don't do the snake dance. That's for the other show. Okay. So should I do the scorpion? I'm to get you. <laughs> scorpion dance. So Kieran writes in. <laughs> okay. Uh, with a favorite Olympic moment, uh, which is when Ireland beat Australia in the women's bobsled competition at the 2010 Winter Games. Ireland had originally been qualified, but then we're told they had to be bumped because Australia had some loophole, or had to be a blah, 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 and the challenge is going back and forth. Eventually, they both did go down that hill, and Australia came in last, and Ireland beat them. Coming in second to last. Hey! One of Kieran's favorite activists, which was the the prompt for this episode, Mm -hmm. uh, is Sophia Jex Blake, a British woman active in 19th century feminism uh, at the the forefront of the fight for women to uh, become educated, to go to university, and to become accredited as doctors. She was the leader of the Edinburgh Seven, a group of women who were the first to study medicine in the UK. And, of course, they faced intimidation, death threats. And uh, on one occasion, there was a riot to stop them from taking an exam. Oh. The university, caving to this pressure, took them to court uh, and and got the decision that uh, the law did not allow women to go to university. So Sophia uh, got a member of parliament to change that law and went to an Irish university to take her final exams, because by then she'd finished all of the studying, uh, and became the first woman doctor to qualify in the UK by regular means. Others uh, qualified through sneaky loopholes that were closed behind them. 
Yeah. Kieran also has an article about her and her life as a gay woman in the 1800s. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks, Kieran. Greta sent us a letter. Greta is a new listener. Hi, Greta. Uh, recently found us and has been listening to us nonstop. Hope you're caught uh, up, Greta. <laughs> <laughs> and they sent us a response to the last prompt they heard. Uh, which was the best part of 2017 for them, was meeting the love of their life, getting engaged. Hello, Levi. Hi, Levi and Greta. Uh, and they have a wedding coming up very soon. So congratulations. Mm-hmm. You did it. Good job. You did it. Uh, well, it's coming up really soon, so I don't have to give my wedding warning of don't go outside and get sun- sunburned before your wedding. Don't do it. Don't be me. I don't know where you live. I, that's true. You could live in like very a warm places. place. That very, they're very sunny places. I don't know why I'm assuming it's dreary Chicago. You're like two weeks out, so try not to get too stressed. Although, come on, we know you're gonna. It's gonna. It's, it's gonna happen. It's okay. It's okay. You'll make congratulations. it. Congratulations. And thanks for listening. Oh, and the show suggestions. One of those has been on my mind for a while. Yeah. Thanks so, for those. Yeah. Uh, Final Gamer writes in with a a favorite activist, recent Nobel Prize uh, winner, Malala Yousafzai, uh, the Pakistani woman fighting for women's rights to an education, uh, and yes, the youngest Nobel Prize winner in history so far. Maybe eventually an eight-year-old will do something really notable, but I doubt it. (laughs) She began her career in activism in 2008 uh, when her father took her to a press club on the subject of how dare the Taliban take away my basic right to an education. She then became a peer educator at the Institute for War and Peace Reporting and became an anonymous blogger for uh, the BBC uh, in th- their Urdu website. She, she started getting death threats online, even printed in newspapers, and she survived an assassination attempt in 2012 uh, when she was shot in the head by a, a Taliban gunman. On a school bus. Yeah. Now, if I were to be shot in the head by the Taliban, I would probably stop what I'm doing. But she did not. That's why I don't have a Nobel Prize. She just did it even more. She's amazing. She's amazing. Mm -hmm. And so that is why she continues to uh, advocate for and provide uh, women's education and has set up her own foundation imploring the world to invest in books, not bullets, uh, fighting against sexism, inequality, and socially accepted ignorance in all its forms, and opening her own uh, school for girls uh, for impoverished Syrian refugees in Lebanon. We also had a letter from Kristen, Mm -hmm. who uh, said much the same thing. Uh, Their favorite activist is also Lala Yousafzai. So thank you both. Thank you both so much. Joanne sent us an email in reference to the the St. Louis episode. Mm -hmm. Um, The St. Louis side of uh, Joanne's family always uh, would say that the neighborhood of St. Louis that is known as Dogtown is where they claim the anthropological encampment Mm -hmm. of... Where they fed the people dogs. Where they fed people dogs uh, was. And that... Thus, the That's nickname not true. stuck. But no. No? No. The, the area I found called Dogtown yes. is south of the, the remaining parkland that was the fairground. Mm. Whereas the uh, uh, anthropological villages were to the west of it. Okay. So nearby. Close, close. W- walking distance. But yeah, there is now a, a seminary built on the site of the, the Philippine village. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
new mystery. Why is that neighborhood called Dogtown? <laughs> we must investigate. Um, maybe. Yeah, but thank you, Joanne. Thanks, Joanne. Porin writes in yet again to share a favorite activist, more of a revolutionary fighter. But that's a form of activism if you think about it. Yeah. Priya Pahone is one of the four musketeers that led the revolution to overthrow Thailand's monarchy in 1932. Like so many uh, uh, historical figures, he was friends with a lot of other famous people, like like, uh, Hideki Tojo uh, and Hermann Goring, for example. It's, it was the 30s. You're going to meet a lot of interesting folks. Yeah. Uh, in 1927, he, he founded a political party of a kind in Paris with like-minded Thai students who opposed the monarchy. They, they called themselves uh, the promoters because they wanted to promote change and later the People's Party. In 1930, they returned to Thailand, uh, began uh, growing their network, gaining supporters, and plotting a coup. So uh, in 1932, June, while the king's on vacation in the south, these promoters started an uprising by seizing uh, broadcast stations around Bangkok and spreading a a news story that there is a Chinese uprising in Bangkok uh, so that everybody who listened to the news would be like, oh, why why is there all this military activity? Must be the Chinese. I'm going to stay home. Uh, So Priya, his job is to get to the military headquarters and convince the the commander to open up the base and move the troops out to suppress the fake Chinese uprising so that his folks can sneak in and take all the guns and lock the troops out of of their house, Mm -hmm. basically. Yeah. So he did a bit better than that. He found the commander sleeping and arrested the guy for sleeping on duty when there's a crisis, even though the crisis was fake. That doesn't matter. There's about to be a real one, so it kind of counts. Yeah. One of the military officers that was uh, sympathetic to them assumed command and ordered a tank battalion to march into Throne Hall. Uh, The rest of the bases in Bangkok were told there's a military exercise, so they joined in as well. Like, oh, we got to do this? Let's let's do this. Let's all march into uh, the palace. Yeah. So they reach the palace in the morning. Everyone else in the city is real confused. They're trying to find these Chinese people (laughs) having a, a bear of a time. Priya climbs into the leading tank to read the People's Party Manifesto and declares an end to absolute monarchy and proclaims a new constitutional state. His party members cheer, and the troops also cheer along because, like, you know, peer pressure. Uh, (laughs) So the bluff worked. The king, on vacation, receives his news that he lost Bangkok overnight to fake Chinese and real students, uh, thinking most of the military defected. When really, they were just sort of caught up in the the mystery of it all. Yeah. He steps down, and that is how the coup worked. Yeah. It was a a military coup without the real military. And a dude getting mostly bad information. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So by the end of the day, uh, life in Bangkok returned to normal. Uh, One person was was injured uh, in the whole coup. Which is even better than Portugal had it, Frank. Yeah. Good job. You win. Yeah. Uh, one of the greatest bluffs in history, says Porin. Yeah. So, yeah. Thanks, Porin. Yeah. Uh, that's our letters. If it you is. would like to send us a letter, where can those go? You can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com and you can answer prompts. You can drop us a line. You can give us show suggestions. You can just tell us a story. Yeah. And uh, speaking of prompts, do you have one for the folks for next episode? 
You don't think I've done this prompt. I don't think so. So we're going to do it. I want to know your favorite serial killer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Y'all have them. Don't lie. I guess they can be fictional or not. It's up to you. Um, I think all the best ones are fictional yeah. because that means they haven't actually killed people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that That is logic, yes. And again, uh, you can send those or, or anything else you might want to have read on the air too. Historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram at History Honeys. Mm-hmm. But something we would love for you to do uh, is help us kick the year off right. We're still in January. It still counts. Uh, it is to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, wherever else you found us. Uh, it helps a great deal. I don't know if that's how Greta came to the party, but it might be. Might be. It works. I don't know. You can also tell a friend. That might be how Greta <laughs> came to the party. We don't know, but it, keep it up. It definitely works. It definitely works, yes. Thank you all very much. You could, you could, like, just, I don't know, if your friend, like, leaves their phone around, you can just, like, go download it, and then they'll yeah. be like, make us be, like, this sneaky, like, U2 album. We're just there. <laughs> and they'll be like, what is this? And they'll be like, this is amazing. I must keep listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always wondered about those rose emojis. Yeah. 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 We do appreciate uh, everything you, you do to, to help us... Keep going strong. Yeah. Into the 45th episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to make it. I can taste it. We can do this. We got it. So with that, I'm Grant. I'm Lena. And history's better with, with your, your honey. honey.